We're going to open up to Matthew chapter 7. We've been going through here Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and kind of looking at the introductory teachings of Jesus. We've been talking about that on Sunday afternoons. We've been talking a little bit about it on Wednesday uh, evenings. We've been talking about it here and there. We're kind of at the end of chapter 7. Uh, last, uh, maybe last Sunday or the Sunday before that, we kind of got up and, t- well, the Sunday before that, we got up and talked about the last few uh, sections of chapter 7, but um, probably this morning we need to just recap what we have gone through because I don't think I did that last time. And so that would be really important for us to just kind of grasp what we have gone through throughout this entire section of teaching. So we're looking at Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, and the whole kind of starting point for all this was the verse out of Luke 7 where Christ gives the parable of the servant and makes the point at the end that the servant's response when he has done what is expected of him is that, Lord, this was my duty to do so. Okay, and we talked about our duty to serve Jesus Christ, our duty to live a life for him, that it is called a duty. That's what it is referred to. It's not a uh, not a weighty thing, not a heavy thing, not a difficult thing in many ways, but it is what we are called to do. Okay, And so it is important for us to serve him as we have been called and expected to do. Okay, And so we, out of that, launched into his initial teachings to kind of give us the, the, ba- the basis for this, to give us the ground level. What is it that Christ taught? If we call ourselves Christians, what are we supposed to do? Okay, And what does that look like? And how does that work in our lives? And so we said the best place to f- figure all that out is to go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to start there and to look at Jesus' teachings and his life examples and say, okay, this is what Jesus did. And therefore, if I'm going to call myself a Christian and I'm going to say I follow him, well, then i got to do what he did, right? That just makes sense. So we look through chapter 5, and in chapter 5 you have all those different sections talking about different kind of life applications, like things about adultery and lust and fornication and anger and murder and all those kind of things. And we <clears throat> really hit on the highlights of you know the really hard things that we see in these portions of Scripture, and it's not things about... Um, calling people fools, and it's not things about being salt and light. It's actually the harder things are praying for your enemies. And we talked about how that is a very important attribute of a Christian, okay, is to pray for your enemies, not be the voice among thousands of voices that call for our enemies to be blown up to smithereens and destroyed, and I can't wait till they get what's coming to them, and I hope it's ten times worse and all these things. That's not the pattern of a Christian. A Christian is forgiving, loving, and praise for his enemies. Okay? We talked about it with prayer. When you look at the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6, we discussed that it is okay to say the Lord's Prayer. Okay, We discussed that in depth, that it's not a vain repetitious if you're, repetition if you're not doing it vainly and just repetitiously. Okay, But that the Lord's Prayer is an excellent way of communicating all the things that we stand in need for every single day. And of course, it's not all encompassing and it doesn't even have in there about healings and intercessory prayers and things like that, but it's definitely 
definitely a good foundation to start from. But what we thought was the most important and kind of the most interesting thing out of that was that at the very end of it, after so many people stop at the Lord's Prayer and they start debating about what's a vain repetition and whether you should be doing it this way or not, you miss the whole point of that section of Scripture, which was Christ saying, if you don't forgive others, I won't forgive you. That was what's important, okay? That out of all those pieces of scripture there, that is the most important thing. Because whether you're doing it vainly or repetitiously or for show or not for show or standing on corners or doing it in your closet, if you don't forgive others, God says he won't forgive you. Well, that's pretty important, wouldn't you say? Say, oh, well, I didn't do it on a corner. I did it in a closet. I didn't do it vainly. I wasn't repetitious, but I don't forgive my enemies. I hate them and I hope they get what's coming to them. Well... I'm going to tell you, God's going to hold something against you. That's what was important. All of it's important, but those are the big things that we need to realize. This is what actually living out the Christian walk looks like, okay? Because even if you get all the form and all the technique and all the style and all the locations right, it really gets back to that one key fundamental issue that we talked about, and that is your heart. Where is your heart at in these things? Where is our heart at when we're giving alms or doing righteousness? Is it to be seen of men? Are we just doing it because we're told to? Or are we doing it because we love people like Christ loved people? And what about the three kind of characteristics or the daily, not characteristics, but the daily activities we talked about for Christians, which were giving alms, doing righteousness, prayer, okay, and fasting. That Christ, out of all the kind of activities that he could have listed out there, Attending church, doing certain kind of functions, you know, having a fall festival, all those things that we know that are very important to churches, right? Um, that are just the crux of what we do. Keeping our Bibles on our nightstands. Praying before we eat. You know, all these activities and things that we think are important. Christ listed out three extremely important things that he wanted to focus on, which was giving alms, which we said was not just putting money in the plate or giving to the United Way, but that giving alms actually means to do righteousness, which means you're going beyond just a giving of money type of thing, and you're going into giving righteousness, doing righteousness, righteous things like loving other people, taking care of other people, giving your time, giving your effort, giving your energy, giving your space, giving your uncomfortableness, you know, all those things to other people to help other people to go beyond yourself. And so that is important. And he said, then we should be in prayer. All right, and that's where we get the Lord's Prayer from. He said, not if you do it, but when you do it. Okay? So he was emphasizing the essentialness of prayer. And lastly, he reflects on fasting. Obviously, he was expecting us to be doing that, right? And we kind of talked about this as we were talking about the Lent stuff. That, you know, there are things that you can fast from that give us the opportunity to take something distracting away and replace it instead with studying the word of God or entering into more prayer, okay? Taking that time to dedicate time to God for his service, okay? So those three, those three daily activities were the three that he listed out. That we, I mean, that's pretty important. If Christ said it, that makes it pretty important. Wouldn't you agree? So if he said it, then we should be doing it. If we call ourselves a Christian, then we should be doing it. Why? Because Christ told us to do it. And he only gave us three. I think that's pretty good too. 
We've been kind of joking and talking about ADHD Christianity and everything and how hard it is for us to keep up with so much stuff. And we talk about the Old Testament and we talk about how, man, that's really got to be tough. I mean, all those different things, wash this way, eat this way, don't touch this if you do it seven days. And, oh, goodness, did I touch it? And then, well, but I brushed up against it. It's kind of like a, like a touch football thing. Well, did you really touch me? Well, no, I just caught a wind off of you or I brushed up against, well, my, you know, my hip touched you. Does that count or does it have to? I mean, all these things that the, the kind of Jewish law service started developing. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. Okay, by the end of it, there were some 600 and something different things that were made up of the different things that you could and could not do. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, there's no way that I'd remember all that. Okay, And that was part of the point. They couldn't keep it. It was too large. Okay, There was no way that you could keep all that. And we were discussing and joking about how easy God made it. He like said, everything is summed up in this one sentence. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. That's the whole law and the prophets. Well... You know, that's not too hard to remember, right? And it's funny because I have been going through that and we have been talking about that so much and I've been kind of regurgitating that and keep throwing it at my children. And so like Samuel and Asa now will come to us, which they're just always looking for reasons to come tattle on somebody else. And so they come to us and be like, he's not doing to me like I want him to do to me, you know. I'm like, yeah. Well, you're tattling on him, so you're not doing to him what you, you know. It is, it's a vicious cycle. It just keeps going back around. But he says all that's summed up in this one statement. And we talked about in other places. He says, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and body, and spirit, and everything you got. And love your neighbor as yourself. For on these two hang all the law and the prophets. And we said that was God's way of encompassing, number one, a simpler form of, of instruction and direction. Okay. <laughs> But number two, it was also to give us insight into actually what he wanted, okay? So as we go back to the Old Testament and you read through Leviticus and Numbers and Chronicles, which I know is y'all's like favorite book of the Bible. I don't even have to tell you about it. I know that's what y'all always are reading. You're always in that Leviticus. Can't get you out of it. But when you're looking at that and you're going through all these different law processes, okay, and you're looking at all that going, what in the world is all this for? Why did God do this? What is the point? Okay. We talk about there's a method to in, kind of interpreting scriptural things. Okay. And you obviously have to apply the local context to it, which is this had a direct local context for those Jews. Okay. But there are these greater theological contexts that extends out. That's why when Timothy says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, okay, it's given by God, by inspiration, and that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, those kind of things. That that includes Leviticus. So if you hadn't been reading Leviticus, you may need to go brush up on it, okay? But there's greater theological principles out of it. Principles of holiness, cleanliness, okay, in spiritual context. Covenant relationship, love, okay. That's where that, that relationship thing comes out of all of that law-based stuff that we look at and go, man, this has no application. I mean, I'm not rounding the corners of my beard, and so, you know, I don't have to worry about that. But there's a greater theological principle behind it all. But even in all that, there's this underlying simple belief, simple teaching that Christ reiterates to us in the New Testament. And that is to do to others as you would have done to yourself. 
No man hates his own flesh. No man hates his own body. Christ used this example with husbands and wives. You don't, you're not going to abuse your wife in a, whatever, in a natural, spiritual, emotional, whatever kind of sense. You are not going to do mean and ugly things to them. Why? Because you don't do that to yourself. All right? Naturally, you want good things for yourself. You want the best things. You want the, you know, all this stuff. You naturally want good things for yourself. And so he's saying from a natural point of view, you treat yourself pretty doggone good, all right, with your me time and your all this stuff. And so he says, think about that now inverted and say that's why you love your wife as yourself, okay? Because he knew we were selfish, vain creatures and we loved ourselves a whole lot, Okay. Now, in the same context, he says, now when you're doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's the same thing. You're treating other people in the way that you selfishly and, you know, according to your own desires, would want yourself to be treated in a good way. You would want compassion. You want love. You want to feel like people care about you. You want people to talk to you in a certain way. If you think about this, like if you get with older generational people who have younger generational people under them, we emphasize to them what? Respect. Okay? Talk to me with respect. You don't say, yeah, you say, yes, sir. You don't say, why? You were to treat me with respect because I'm your elder. Well, we desire and we want that. That's what we seek, okay? So if that's what we know we want for ourselves, then what Christ simply said is, well, then that's what you do to other people. You treat them with respect. You treat them with compassion. You treat them with love and mercy because you need to think like we've been told all the time. Put yourself in their shoes and then how would you want to be treated? Okay? So he teaches us that all of this stuff that he's been teaching about for the last three chapters is summed up as well as all the stuff that's been talked about in the last 33 you know, books of the Bible going through all the old... T- that's been summed up in one simple phrase that you are to love have compassion, respect, treat others as you would want to be treated. And so that was getting towards the end of chapter 7. Right after he makes that statement, and again, we talked about it wasn't it was not divorced from the two, that at the end of his statement about seeking and, and asking and all of these things, and after his statement about... about um, uh, about the fruit and the things about... Uh, I'm sorry, I got lost my train of thought thinking about um, Jane back there screaming. Um, that if you're talking about with fathers giving good gifts unto their sons and naturally how that looks out in the heavenly father giving good gifts unto his children, he says, therefore, do to others as you would have done unto you. He says, look at the natural examples and see that even naturally you do this. Okay? Naturally, fathers, whether they're born again, uh, true blood, Christians, whatever, they know how to give good gifts unto their children. Okay? So he says, don't you think your heavenly father who is good, who is righteousness, who is love and compassion and mercy, don't you think he's going to do that for you? And it's something that I think is very important. And what he was trying to get from them, trying to get them to understand was that you have a heavenly father. Okay, that was the main point of those sections of scripture there in verses seven down through 12, that he was trying to get them to understand 
you have a heavenly father. You don't have some untouchable God figure. You have a heavenly father. You have a relational in kind, of, uh, kind of interaction with God. That's why he was saying, if you ask, you will receive. If you knock, it'll be open. You know those things. He says, because you're talking to your father who's in heaven, who, by the way, is the creator of the universe. He was trying to get them to understand the powerful relationship they were a part of. Okay? Then he says, whatsoever that you would admit that you would that men would do to you do unto them, because this is the law and the prophets. And we came down to verse 13, and that's where we kind of talked about last time, and we're going to close it out today. So in verse 13, he says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that uh, which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire." Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity." So in this section of scripture, again, it seems like it might be disjointed. Like maybe he's changing uh, scenes, he's, he's changing directions, looking at different things, going in a different direction. But as we tried to impress upon you as you went through this whole section of scripture from 5 to 7 here, it's all one sermon around one topic. Okay, said, so, oh, well, but I mean, he's talking about like divorce and he's talking about adultery and he's talking about enemies and praying and all this. I mean, those are different subjects. Yeah, but they're all wrapped around the same central principle, which was is that it's an issue of the heart that he wants to try to get people to reflect on. Okay. And why this is so important is because if you go back to the Old Testament and you read different stories about Israel, okay, going all the way to Exodus, Okay, and looking as they came out of Egypt and then going forward past that in about every book at some point in time, some place, you will come to verses of scripture that address the heart issues of the people of Israel. Okay, he'll go and say, you have hardened your heart towards me and done X, you wicked and obstinate hearted people, you and on and on and on and on. Okay. In Zechariah, he uses a very, um, a very interesting phrase where he talks about, you have made your heart as Adamite stone. Okay? I mean, that's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty interesting language there. And all I can think of is adamantium and wolverine. And anyway, and that's where my mind goes when I think about that. But that's where he says, you have hardened your heart to this level of such intensity that you will not hear my words. And we talked about this with prayer because in that same scripture, he says, and because you have hardened your heart and will not hear my words, guess what? You're going to cry to me and I'm not going to hear you. And we talked about um, the applications of, of doing these things he told us to do if we expect or desire a relationship with our father. 
And so here he talks to them and he says, enter in at the straight gate, okay? And we've all heard this section of scripture and we've all been through it multiple times. And people have all of these different slants and all these different things about it and what it's meaning and what we're trying to come up with. And is this eternal life? And is this hell? And are we going to walk off the road to hell and all these things, okay? But what we need to understand is a few things out of this that are important, okay? Number one... This is not a, what I said is a quantitative statement, okay? So there are people who want to take this and say, see, there's few people that enter into the good way. There's a lot of people that enter into the bad way. And depending on which way you're taking this, okay, either that means that there's a few people going to heaven and a lot of people going to hell, okay? Or there's a few people in this world who maybe they're children of God who are actually going to find God, follow God, pursue God. There's only a few of them that are going to find him. The rest of them are all going to die never knowing God that there's more that enter into the gate of destruction than the gate of, of life. But what I want you to kind of push away is that thought. Okay, This is not quantitative. God is not giving us a sneak peek into the numbers of heaven. Nor is he giving us a prescription of kind of pessimism about what's going to happen here in the world. That, yeah, I'm going to born people again. I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit. They're going to have this rebirth situation, but they're never really going to know me. They're never going to follow me. In fact, more of them are going to follow the path to destruction than the path to life. And ultimately, they're going to die a miserable apostasy. And, okay, that's, that's not what this is talking about, right. right? This is giving you the idea or the perception it is giving you the picture in a very nice, you know, word picture way. We talked about straight there, S-T-R-A-I-T, um, like you have the Straits of Gibraltar and the Straits of Hormuz and these places where you have two land masses coming together, making a narrow pass for water to flow through, okay? And we talked about that the, the teaching that Christ is giving us here is that it is easier it is the more natural thing. It is the way that most of the crowd is going, if you want to keep adding on analogies here, to follow a path of destruction. Okay, That's why he says it's broad and there's many that follow it. He's giving the idea it is easier. Okay, That there are more pitfalls in this world trying to drag you away from Christ... Then there are supports trying to lead you to Christ. That there's many of those pitfalls. You've always heard you're following the in crowd, okay? And beyond that, you've always heard if you get in a narrow place and you've got a ton of people on it, you kind of just go where everybody goes, right? You, can't, you don't really have room to navigate, right? And if you have a Broadway full of a lot of people, it's still it's easier to navigate with the crowd than it is against the crowd. We talked about that if you, and, and this just is more application, you know, we just got back from San Antonio and there's a place down there called the Riverwalk that you might have gone on before. And it was one night we went, there was nobody there, okay? And it's this nice, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly large sidewalk, but it's about a sidewalk side. On the other side, you got a river, okay? Short river, I mean, a, a, a shallow river, but it's still a river, okay? You're, you're between a rock and a hard place. There's nowhere to go. Well, when there's nobody on it, we can cruise up and down there pretty easily. We don't have to worry about it. But then we went back on a Friday night, and they had vendors along the sides that had big old booths. And then you had like a 1,000 people trying to walk on it, and there was a pretty – wasn't a lot of room, okay? 
What a lot of ways to navigate around people. So basically, you just did whatever the person in front of you did. When they stop, guess what? The whole line stops because you can't pass anybody. It's either you pass in the river, walking on the river, or you're in the river and you're swimming. So there's no real way to go, all right? So in that case, we very much were just following the crowd, all right? We had a destination we were trying to get to, you know, 100 yards down the way, but it was like, hey, you know what? If these people in front of us want to stop and browse for an hour, we're just here, okay? No way to get around them. It's much easier for us in that case to follow with the crowd than it was if we tried to go elbowing and repelling off the side of people to get around and go. So there is many applications in life, okay, where it is much easier just to go along with what everybody else is doing. And I know you've probably heard it preached this way and you've heard this analogy so often. And especially if you've ever been in high school, you know, you get that thing. All right, don't go with the in crowd. Don't go with just what everybody else is doing. If everybody was walking off a cliff, wouldn't you? And, you know, then I have a sister who does walk off cliffs. And um, and so it's just, you know, I, I always question thought and rationality about that. But, you know, when you get these analogies, it makes true application to our lives. Okay. And this isn't just a call to be countercultural, because that's usually what follows with this. It's like, oh, you're a Christian. You're supposed to be counterculture. Don't go with the increase, you know, all this stuff. Okay. But it's more just to think about, reflect on this. Reflect on what your heart is more prone to want to do. Remember, Christ calls out the Pharisees and he makes a point. He says, you don't understand that it's not what goes into a man that corrupts him and defiles him. It's what comes out. That it's actually out of the wickedness of your heart that your mouth will speak. Okay? So we got to think about how in our daily lives we're a little bit more prone. Okay? It's a really a little bit easier for us just to kind of go back and do what we feel like is just natural. Okay? Maybe we have an anger problem. Well, it's harder for us to control that than it is for us to just let it go. Hey, and just accept it. I'm an angry person, and that's how I was, and that's how I'll always be. Okay? This is the argument that so many people use today. Well, I just can't help it. I was born that way. Okay? In fact, I think somebody sings a song about that. I can't help it. I was just born that way. And it's easier for me to just give in to it, go along with it, and accept it as just... That's just my life. Can't do anything about it. It's much harder for me to get onto that narrow path and to follow Christ and to go against what everybody, including my own intuitions, natural abilities, natural slants, okay? It's much harder for me to divert off of that. I think last time we used the example, if you've ever been on a, on a rafting trip or if you've ever been on a uh, canoe trip or something and you're going down a river, when you're on that broad, wide river that's going, you know, g- going downstream, really easy to sit in that current and just let it take you on, right? Okay. But if you've got a boat dock, if you've got a narrow, especially if you're trying to dock up into like a little, um, a little recessed place, okay, it's much harder to cut back and go back up river and pull up into that little creek and try to pass. I mean, it takes some effort. Okay. Down river, it's just a little, you're just stroking it along, just going right along. No problems. Easy going. Especially if you've got a good current flowing downhill, you just cruise on down there. Much harder to divert course and go a different way, especially a narrow way, okay? Now, I used this last time, and I wanted to try to impress on our minds to make sure that we understand. I keep talking about the broad way being easy, okay? And, you know, I, I want to say it in a way that in kind of indicates for us that it is the more natural path, 
Okay? And usually the more natural path is the easier path. Right? The flow of a river. It just goes where it, you know, that's how rocks and everything get uh, carved out. It's just because that's the natural, easy path. The river is going to take the path of least resistance. Okay? So I want us to understand that as the application of the easiness of it. Right? But I also want us to understand because a lot of times when we talk about our problems of sin or whatever it may be that, that catches us up in life, okay? Sometimes we look at it and we will take like Paul's readings in Romans chapter 7 and going into chapter 8 and we'll kind of look at that and be like, yeah, I know, it's just so hard. I'm in this war and I've got these, whatever they use, analogy of two dogs or whatever it is, fighting against each other. And it's just like, I can't escape it. I can't do better. I can't help this. This is just my nature. That's what I would do. I don't know which I want to do. I don't know this stuff. And you go at it from this mindset of like, it's just this insurmountable goal. Okay. The river's too broad, it's flowing too fast, I can't change direction, I can't help it. But my friends, that's not what the gospel tells us, okay? And that's certainly not what Christ is implying here. He's not saying, well, that's the easier way, and it's really going to be hard for you to follow the straight and narrow, and that's why there's only a few people that get on it. That's not what he's talking about. Because it's the same Jesus Christ that gives us the power to overcome. So when Romans 7 gets preached sometimes and it stops with this idea of like, yeah, you got two natures and they're constantly warring. And you would want to do things and you don't because you can't. And you don't want to do things and you can't help yourself because you just got these two natures and that's how it is. But that's not the end. Chapter 7 ends with, with Paul saying, but I thank God through Jesus Christ I have the victory. So it ends with victory. Not with acquiescence. It doesn't end with the ability, with the kind of, I just can't help it, and so I'm giving up. This is just how I am. I was born this way. It doesn't end like that. Paul says, no, you have victory through Jesus Christ. And then he goes into all of Romans chapter 8, which is talking about the victory in Jesus Christ. And he ends chapter 8 with saying, who shall stand against us? No one. Because of? Jesus Christ. So he keeps going back to that. So when we talk about this narrow way and we talk about, oh, it seems so hard and you can't. No, that, that's what Christ's for. And in fact, Christ is that narrow way. Okay. So it's not like you're looking for this separate path or trying to find a different way to get to heaven or whatever. No, it's you're finding Christ. Christ is the narrow way. The other way to look at that is narrow means that there's just one. It's just one path. So it's not about trying to stay on the straight and narrow and not tip off and fall to hell. It's I'm following Jesus Christ or else I'm following this other way, which is only going to lead to destruction. But in that way, in Jesus Christ, we have victory. In Jesus Christ, we have power. In Jesus Christ, we have power to overcome death. So I don't think our anger issues, our lust problems, everything that he's gone back here through five and six and seven, they don't. They don't hold weight against Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's trying to sum up for these people. And for us today, he said, you have it in Christ. In Christ, you say, well, it's just so difficult. These people have wronged me. You don't know how bad they've been to me. They've said all these things about me. I just can't forgive them. He says, no, because I forgave you, you can forgive them in Christ. Here we go. You can move forward. That's the way. 
Well, but these are my enemies and they hate me and they're so mean to me and I just can't see. I mean, they really, I really want you just to come down kind of like Jonah sitting on the hill with Nineveh. I want you to come down like he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, God, and just burn all these people to a crisp. Take them out of here. They're so mean and ugly and they despise your name. And God said, well, but today I'm choosing a different way. I'm going to give them repentance. And Jonah was mad. Jonah was upset by that. In fact, he even more showing the kind of selfishness of his heart, he mourned more over the little fig thing that God made appear over his head than he did for the thousands of people God granted repentance. God says, through me, the way, you've got life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, so praying for your enemies, whereas you say, I just can't see myself ever doing that. Well, Christ did it. And we're following him, right? And he's giving us power, right? Well, if that's the case, then you can. So let's quit making excuses. Instead, just follow Christ. So he says, enter in there. And he goes on and talks about false prophets. And we were talking about that this is a very specific application you don't take these verses down here and you go out and you start painting broad brushes and calling yourself fruit inspectors and trying to figure out who's a child of god or not and say oh well, they had fruit so it looks like they were or they didn't have fruit i couldn't see it and guess they weren't and because you know what you don't have any control over that and let's just be honest you ain't got a clue yep. we all ain't got a clue <laughs> benny hen john MacArthur, john piper Calvin, Luther, whoever it was, the Pope, none of them have a clue. None of them can look at a person and know where they're going, okay? Only Jesus Christ can. So when he's talking about talking about these people and their fruit and what they're doing, he's talking to false prophets, people who were going to come in amongst the people, and I'm going to argue who had already been amongst the people, okay? In the form of Pharisees and Sadducees and other people who had no desire for really to worshiping God. They desired their power. They desired their religion. Which is ultimately why they crucified Christ. Because he was messing up their gig. He was messing with what they had going on. He describes these people as false prophets, as ravening wolves who come in looking like sheep just so they can eat you up. So these are people with a malicious intent, all right? Again, that's why you don't start picking out people in church going, hmm, I think they're a, I think they're a wolf. Looks like a wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm not sure what they're doing, but look at that. And that's why you don't, because he's talking to a specific group of people, false prophets. He doesn't say false professors. He doesn't say false believers. He doesn't say false Christians. He says false prophets, people who are going to come in and preach and teach something that is contrary to what Jesus Christ taught now we can get kind of political or we can get kind of a greater i guess you could say uh christian message based okay since we've been talking about what christ really taught well i can go ahead and tell you there's a lot of false prophets out there and it's not people that i'm going to go through so yeah like arminians and calvinists and all no i'm talking about people who are ravening wolves okay people who purposefully corrupt what jesus christ taught for their own gain. That is what we're talking about. That's why you don't apply these verses so broadly. 
Okay? And that's why you don't take every other denomination of the world and go, yeah, they're just a bunch of false prophets. They're wolves in sheep's clothes. No, no, because that's not their intent. Are they ravening wolves? Are they trying to kill and eat up the people of God? No. These people desired destruction or self Gain. That's what these people were for. And I could probably go out and list a lot of people that fall into that category. Okay? And there are plenty of people historically who fall in that category trying to gain from the name of God. Okay? And not in a good way. And he says, but you're going to know these people because they're not going to bear the right fruit. So maybe they talk a good talk, but their walk is going to be different and i think we would all agree and we can see them on the news all the time in different cases but i think we see that play out don't we i think we see people show who they really are given enough time they can keep up a really good facade but there's going to come a time you're going to see that fruit come out as we said out of the wickedness of the heart the mouth speaks you can't keep it in all right just like all those times that you've had occasions where we just kind of had that, what we call diarrhea of the mouth, where stuff just comes out and you can't stop yourself. You say things that you're like, oh, I want to get it back, bring it back in. You can't help that wicked heart saying that wicked thing, okay? There's times it just comes out. And here he says, you're going to see their fruit. You're going to know what these people really believe and where they stand. And it's important to grab that because that's where he goes into and starts teaching about um, about everyone who says, Lord, Lord, in that day shall not enter and, and, and all those things. And people start reading those sections of Scripture and start getting really confused, okay? Because they say, oh, man, this is, this is looking like that if I don't have the right kind of religion or the right denomination or the right Bible, then I'm not going to get in. Because here there's people who said, Lord, Lord, they, they did things. They did, you know, they cast out demons in their name and all this stuff. And man, doesn't that look like the right thing? But again, what you have is people, as he's describing them as false prophets, people who are going to try to come in and look like they really believe what they're talking about. They're even going to do stuff. All right. You can look over in sections of Scripture like in Acts 19 where you had uh, the, the occasion of the vagabond Jews. Okay? These people who were called themselves exorcists. Okay? And they took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Okay? And we often laugh at that section of Scripture and laugh at that story because what ends up happening? The people call on him and the devil looks at him and goes, Well, I know Paul and I know Jesus, I don't know you, and ends up beating him up and whipping him so bad that they run away naked and screaming. And it sounds like a very funny story that you just wouldn't expect to find in your Bible, okay? Getting the pants beat off of you just doesn't seem to fit, all right, with biblical narrative, but there it is, by inspiration, so... But you have people throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament. Now, you can go back to the Old Testament and you can just start checking off names, okay? Of people who claim to be prophets, claim to be leaders of Israel and leaders of the temple. And they said, oh yeah, it's Jehovah all the way, Yahweh, no other. And yet they were the very ones sacrificing to Baal in the temple, okay? So they said they were prophets of God. They said that they believed in him. They said that that's who they were serving. But here they are making sacrifices to Baal. Well, that's like commandment number one. By your fruit, you will know them. 
In Acts chapter 19, with the vagabond exorcist, I mean the vagabond Jews, the exorcist, they're using the name. But they're not really following the man. So he says that these people who just call on my name that think or that are professing or saying or acting like they truly believe in me, I'm telling you, uh, Christ is telling his hearers here, he's saying, you're going to know them by their fruit, by what they do. You're going to see life, you're going to see their actions play out. And he says, not everyone that just says my name, that says that he's doing stuff in my name, is doing, that's, that's not the admission ticket to the kingdom of heaven okay doing stuff doesn't get you into heaven doing stuff and acting like you believe and acting like you uh want to follow and he says that's not that's not the criteria i use knowing you that's the criteria i use do i know you in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, he'll say this, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So he's making a good correlation there that ties in with what Christ is teaching here. You're going to see these people who want to name the name of Christ but have no inclination to depart from the iniquity that they are entering in for. They're going in here as ravening wolves. They're going in there with a malicious purpose. And he says, but everyone that names the name of Christ needs to depart from iniquity. And he says, and don't worry, God knows those that are his. Here he's telling these people, you said you name the name of Christ, but I don't know you. So it's one of those sections of scriptures that some people will stumble at and get confused at or get worried over and be like, oh, well, goodness, am I a false prophet? Am I the one? You know, here I am. Am I, am, I, am I bearing enough fruit? And what does fruit look like? And I thought that he says fruits, and then in the Galatians it's fruit, and now we're going to argue about plurals or singulars and all these things. Here's what you need to just take a breath and think about. Okay? Over and over again, and when we talk about these things in the scriptures and we discuss them and people get worried about, well, what, you know, all this stuff. Number one, we also, we always have to take the context of who he's talking about. And I'm just going to tell you, this isn't talking about me and you, um, unless you think I'm a false prophet. And then I guess we could have reason to believe that. But this is talking about false prophets. It's talking about a specific group of people. He's making a specific kind of... Um, encouragement in one way for the people he's preaching to to be on the lookout for these people and not to be drawn in by their wolfish ways. Okay, But there is an admonition in this for us. Even though we don't sit in here worrying back about whether Christ knows us or not or whether we're bearing enough fruit or what our fruit is and all that, there is this admonition. What we have seen through all of these chapters is Christ saying it's actions from your heart based on faith in me. That's what marks a true Christian. Okay, And that the faith that is in us that changes our heart, that causes us to love our neighbor and pray for our enemies, those are the actions, those are the fruit... That Christ is calling us to bear, okay? 
So instead of worrying or figuring out if you have, oh, well, when was I last long-suffering? And, and do I have enough joy? And if I don't, oh, no, I don't have enough joy. And maybe that means the Holy Spirit's not in me, and then I'm not a child of God, and here I go on the way to hell. No. Instead, just do what Christ told us to do. Okay? If he said love your neighbor, then love your neighbor. If he said pray for your enemies, then start doing it. If he says that everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity, well then let's do that. If he says repent and be baptized, do it. That's what he said. You know, we've discussed this many times when we've talked about um, the, the, the things about, uh, you know, baptism and repentance that it's, you know, we looked at it and go, oh, well, what is it supposed to mean? And are we joining a church? And does it save you for heaven? Or do you go to hell? I mean, I mean, all these things that we go into ad nauseum all over about what, we, what this means and what it doesn't mean. Here's what it means for you and me. Christ said, do it. Okay? That's what it means. Do you say you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you say you're a professing Christian? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? If you say, yes, I do, then get in the water. That's what he said, do. No debate, no questions, no worrying about it, no figuring out, am I joining a church? Guess what? Joining the church has nothing to do with baptism in the Bible, okay? There's nowhere in the Bible where God says, be baptized and join the church. He says, be baptized, repent, and follow me. That's what it's about. And sometimes I think we've gotten so far away from that that we've turned it into an admission criteria for church and that's how you get in the church. No, that's what Christ told us to do. Whether you ever join a specific church or not, that's what Christ told us to do. Okay? So maybe you have hang-ups with a local church or denomination or whatever. That is irrelevant. God said do it and so we do it. That's plain and simple. I can't make that any easier. Okay? He said repent and be baptized. Simple, very simple. There should be nothing holding us up from that. If we believe in Jesus Christ, that's what we're to do, okay? If we believe in Jesus Christ and profess to be Christians, I almost did it again with the Christians. I don't know what's wrong with me today. If we profess to be Christians, that's what we do. We depart from iniquity. We love our neighbor. We love our enemy. We pray for our enemies. We love our wives. We love our husbands. We love our kids. We treat others with respect as we would want to be treated. We have compassion on others as we would want to have compassion. We do these things. Why? Because we believe in Jesus Christ. End of discussion. So there's nothing that should hold us up. And this is the conclusion that he gives to this so that I can make sure we get through with chapter 7 because I'm pretty sure y'all don't want me to go back. In chapter 7 he says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these things and sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, I know we've heard this 16 million times. And I know we're always talking about, well, that's the blessings of obedience. And see, if you just build your house upon the rock, Jesus Christ, you'll always stand, you'll always have a firm foundation. And that's why we sing all those songs about that. It's not divorced, though, from the previous texts. He's talking to false prophets before that and saying their fruit is going to bear out. Okay? So when you see them in their proverbial house on the sand and they get blown away, there you go. Okay? 
So think about where he's number one in context describing here versus the other picture he gives. So I want us to make sure we grab that because I want us to think about what he's giving you an example of. He's not telling you, go build your house on a rock and then you'll never fall, okay? Or go build your house on a sand and we'll watch you fall. He's not saying that. He said, you're going to see two groups of people play out. That's what you're going to see. In the context of talking about false prophets, you're going to have people who don't do what I tell you to do, okay? And you're going to watch them fall. So when he talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he says, you don't believe me because you're not of my sheep. And then guess what? We get to watch them fall, don't we? And you get to watch them fall in a big way when AD 70 comes along and everything gets destroyed. But more importantly, you get to watch in the other context. He says, watch a person who I have saved. Watch a person who I have born again. Watch a person who I have given faith and spirit and hope and joy and all these things. Watch them because I have built them on a firm foundation. Watch them as the winds of the world blow against them and against the sand and all this stuff. Watch them stand up in the face of adversity. Watch them survive all that the world can throw at them. Watch them because they are founded on me. They're on that narrow way that leadeth to life. So it's important for us to get that picture at the end because what he's doing is he is encouraging as well as, you know, kind of condemning the false prophet people. He's also encouraging us saying, look where Christ has put us. He's put us on himself. He is the rock. And so he gives us the hope that in the future, when problems come at us, we don't have to worry about whether this foundation we are founded on is going to stand. Instead, we do the things that he told us to do, knowing that the outcome is victory. He says, do these things and realize and understand that your outcome is victory. That when you are faced with problems and when your enemy is attacking you and you want so bad just to berate them and destroy them with mighty wrath and vengeance. He says instead you pray for them and then watch the victory. When you're having issues with fornication as he's talking about and you're having issues with things like that and you're lusting and you're having marital problems or whatever it may be because you're having all these problems lusting and seeing things that you shouldn't be looking at. He says, if you will just trust in me and what I have laid, the foundation I have laid, if you will just stand on me and do my words, you'll see the victory. And that follows through everything. If we rest on him in prayer, we will see victory. If we do alms and righteousness, we'll see victory. If we do fasting and things, we will see victory in those things over all adversities. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as scribes. So this is where Christ leaves us at the end of this sermon. And I think Habakkuk 2 and 4 is kind of what kind of sums it up the best and also gives us that mark, those marching orders going forward. Okay? Christ has already given them to us. He says, if you hear my words, you do them because that's what I've told you to do. 
All right, whatever that may be. And we need to go back and probably through the whole year refresh ourselves on everything that he taught in 5, 6, and 7 to go, okay, am I doing it? All right? Am I just thinking it? Am I willing it? Am I wanting it? Whatever. Or am I actually doing it? Because that's what Christ told me to do. And he says, you are to do them. He didn't give us an option. Okay? This wasn't, as I've said over and over again, like with belief and baptism and repentance and stuff. Nowhere does Christ give you the option. Nowhere does he go out and say, do these things if you want to have your best life and you want to feel spiritually fulfilled and you, and you, know, and you want to see. You know, he doesn't do that. He says, you do them because I told you to. You do them because you're my servant and it's your duty to do so. You know, I mean, how many of us as parents have ever said to our children, I know none of us, but have ever said to our children when they ask, why am I doing this? And you said, because I said so. I think every parent in here, even the parents who swore they would never say that, it comes out. You know, we talked about that diarrhea of the mouth thing. It comes out. You can't hold that back. That is like the best answer, right? Don't ask anymore. Don't talk. No more discussion. I don't care what it is. You're going to do it because why? I said so, all right? Well, I told you it was important for us to remember that God is our heavenly father, okay? So what do you think God's telling us when he says, repent and be baptized, love your enemies, do unto others as you would have done unto you, all those things he says, why? Because I said so. No further discussion. You don't have to work that out. You don't have to come to theological, exegetical, whatever. You don't have to be, you know, a shaman on a mountain to have all the knowledge in the world and understand that, that God said so, so we do it. But in, in Habakkuk 2 and 4, he'll say, the just shall live by his faith. It is a commandment. It is an encouragement. It is a... Um, it, is, it is a way, for, a motto for our lives that we will faithfully follow out Jesus Christ because he has justified us. Because he has done the work in us. Because he has saved us. We will live by the faith that he has given us. Okay? And so when he comes to the conclusion of this, everyone was astounded. Why? Because, man, this was Different, And not only that, because he taught with authority. Okay, That was, was the most astounding thing to them. Now, they probably worked out the teachings and said, okay, well, I mean, that just makes sense. He you know, did a good job. He had a beginning and end, a conclusion. He tied everything together. He used scripture. Sounds like a pretty good sermon to me. It wasn't just that. It was that the way he taught was one with authority. Okay. Now, the reason I want us to grab that in closing is because if we believe in him, then we should believe he has authority, right? Right? If he has authority over our lives, that means he tells us what to do and we do it, correct? So if we're not, then we look back at the false prophets and we look back at people and we say, people who refuse to do what Christ told us to do. <coughs> People who do not listen to the one that is in authority, okay, it's going back to daddy references or mommy references, what's usually the outcome of that? Not very good, right? None of us like to, be, to have whippings, do we? 
Nobody likes to be chastised. Nobody likes to be put in time out. Nobody likes to be punished. Okay? So if God has the authority, let's just not go there. Okay? Instead, let's just simply do what he said to do. And as we mentioned before, he said his, his yoke, his burden, his way is easy and light. So I know we were talking about the easiness of going with the broad way and going that way. Christ says, my way is easy. My way is light. It's not burdensome. Again, this is, this is like all the reasons why we ask ourselves why we're not choosing this. Okay? You got the hotel with the best amenities. It's the closest to your location. They got free dry cleaning. They got an open, uh, you know, mini bar with the snacks and stuff in it that you're like, man, I mean, this is great. They come give me mints and free breakfast and lunch and all this. Why would I not choose this? Why would I not follow him? It doesn't make sense. So on the other side, we have Jesus Christ, who is our great Savior, our Father in heaven, who promises us he will hear us, he will give to us according to his will, and he says simply, do these things. And I think that's an easy enough application for us, so may God bless us to try to work harder on that. So we'll take time now, if anybody wants to take the opportunity to do what Christ told us to do.